Can you name a book? The Book of Lies. The book that's most changed my life. The books have nothing to say. The most correct of any book on earth. This book is fantastic. This book is going to, you know, scare people. This book is not a bedtime story. This book is out of control. Oh, truck drivers would love this book. You must burn the books, Montag. That's my second favorite book of all time. I'd like to bear my testimony. I know this book is true. You're listening to the Book of Darren. My guest in this episode is a beach cleaning entrepreneur, journalist. He podiumed at 1997's Storyteller of the Year. He's a published author, a student of the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, gardener, alien abductee, and D.B. Cooper expert, with many radio, TV, and film credits to his name. I absolutely love this dude, and I have so much fun hanging out with him. I'm lucky to know him. And you're lucky to hear from my good friend, Bruce A. Smith. I figured we would start with, with high school. Where'd you go to high school, Bruce? I went to a, a Catholic high school in New York uh, called Chaminade. And I have the dubious distinction of having graduated with uh, Bill O'Reilly. Did you really? Right. And he was a strange fellow even back in high school. We weren't friends, uh, uh, but I knew him. And he was already making a name for himself by senior year, uh, by being beyond. Well, first of all, he was the only conservative speaking publicly in the school. This is 19. This is we we both graduated in June of 1967. And um, my school was getting kind of liberalish and getting away from traditional norms of education by having lots of group discussions like we would turn like one side of the classroom would turn its chairs to the middle and the other side would turn and we'd have like a forum kind of thing and there'd be mixing together of different kinds of classrooms and that's where I met Bill because he and I didn't take any classes together we were in the same grade but uh, I never had any classes with him he was in a different homeroom he happened to be in the homeroom with one of my best friends and everybody was uh, 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 our classrooms. We were placed according to uh, alphabets, you know, alphabetical order. So being Smith, I was with all the S's. And uh, uh, in fact, the guy sitting next to me was John Smith and guy behind him was Tom Smith. <laughs> and uh, in Bill O'Reilly's class, uh, one of my best friends was Frank McPike. So the M's and the O's and the N's were all there. And um, um, there was one day, there was one group discussion that was very disturbing and another one of the kids from the M and N and O homeroom, uh, and I forget his exact name, but his first name was Robert. Robert stunned me and the rest of the assembly by saying Hitler was a good leader and did some really great things for Germany. Um, and went on, and everybody's like, <laughs> you know. And it went on, went on to explain, you know, he got the country organized, the trains were running on time, people were back to work. And uh, yeah, okay, he started a, a world war that killed 30 million people. But that's, you know, that, that's later, you know, and I came home and started talking to my mother uh, about this guy, Bill, and he was the ringleader of this conservative, argumentative clique in the school. 
And I my mother's words, I can hear them to this day. And she goes, that boy can't see the forest for the trees. I actually have some more respect for him now, knowing that he's been a lifelong believer and not, I, if you would have said, you know, he was the most liberal guy back in high school and, you know, then I lose some respect for him, but is he on your Christmas card list? No, I'm not. And I'm not on his, you know, so that's just, that's the way it is. (laughs) These things happen. (laughs) What was your first car? My first car? Uh, My first car was a 68 white VW bug. That sounds about on brand for the time period. Yeah. Yeah. My first wheels were a Honda 350 motorcycle. And I love motorcycles so much that I thought I would never have a car. But, you know, I got tired of riding in the rain. (laughs) Do you miss the bug? Are you nostalgic for it? No, uh, because I have the equivalent currently. I have a 94 Camry that I call the Red Rocket because it is the fastest vehicle, the most aerodynamic, the smoothest and grooviest car I've ever driven. When I'm on the interstates, I have to consciously control myself not to do 80. I have to bring it back down to 70, which is still 10 miles over the speed limit. But, you know, it's just it's just so easy. And uh, it's a remarkable piece of engineering. I um, I don't know when you want to get into the woo-woo, but uh, I talk to my car. I have an intimate relationship with my, my vehicle, and I consider it a magnificent creation, a sublime reflection of consciousness. I only talk to my car when it's broken, and then I don't have very nice things to say about it. Uh, and most of us, ha- you know, have that relationship too, but, um, th- that's, that's one of the advantages of being 72 years old, that I have a degree of evolution, uh, that I'm surfing along. And part of my evolution is developing a, a more complete relationship with my vehicle. What is a more complete relationship? What should I be doing to communicate I'm with we're my friends? We're, we're partners. We have a partnership. We have a respect for each other. We have an understanding of, of what I do and what the car does. I had a great experience um, in this interplay, this relationship, where I, I really feel that the car spoke to me in the, in the way that cars would speak. Uh, past August, I um, was scheduled to work um, helping uh, set up for a car show at the Washington State Fairgrounds, um, which is run by the good guys. Uh, the good guys is a international car show uh, consortium. My family and, went to the good guys show in yeah. uh, Fort Collins here this last year. There, there you go. There you go. Well, I, I helped set up by, by uh, looping the banners onto cyclone fences around to kind of build the ambiance. And um, it was hot. And I've been suffering from a, a malady that has been undiagnosed and has has been undetermined where I'm losing rapidly losing physical stamina. I feel okay until I have to go do something. And I thought I could work my way slowly back into some kind of physical strength. So I took this job. I figured how tough could be stringing up banners on fencing? How tough could that be? Well, it was pretty tough. And what had happened on the day that I was scheduled to show up, my car wouldn't start. 
And I lifted the hood and putzed around. And I said, look, you know, I talked to the car. I said, look, I got to I gotta get to work. And I went back and it started right up. And I got to work. And my knowingness, what the message I was, the communication I got from the car is, got you to work, but I need help. This has got to be fixed. And I'll get you home. But you've got to make arrangements. Um, and it turned out that that first day of working was beyond what I could handle. And so the car gave me an out. And I told my boss, I can't make it tomorrow to, to finish up on the banners because I got to take my, take my car into, into the shop. And I ended up getting, um, uh, I took it in and rested up and felt good and ended up just getting a, a relay for five bucks. And that was fun. But I felt that the car helped give, um, sanctioned my absence. Like it gave me a, a free pass, like a hall pass <laughs> to not go to work. I'm not surprised to hear you say that, that you communicate with your car knowing you. I didn't think you would be, which is why we're having the podcast. This is more like, by the way, I have a question for you. Yeah, let's hear it. What don't you want to ask me? <laughs> what don't I want to ask you? What 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 are you afraid to ask me that you thought I wouldn't want to answer? Oh, I'm not really afraid to ask you anything. Oh, okay, good. All right. So what were you afraid that I didn't want to answer? Oh, I just asked that at the beginning in case you were like, you know what? My, uh, my brother-in-law is going through a hard time, so I don't want to talk about my brother-in-law or my sister. That okay. kind of a thing. Not necessarily... You know, hey, Darren, I don't want to talk to you about anything that happened prior to 1997 or something like that. Okay. You don't want to talk about my hair loss, alopecia? No, apparently that's not okay to talk about if you ask Will Smith. Well, it's that is a I've, I've been I've been astonished that the world is so on this story, uh, because when it happened, I'm going. What are those guys doing? You know, and looking back on it, the the the, the number of endless repeat, and, and you see Will Smith is actually laughing at the joke, and boy, his wife must have given him a dirty look because he, you know, switched like that, and is up there uh, slapping uh, Chris Rock around. And there's a newscaster on NBC by the name of Joshua Jackson or Joshua Johnson, I forget what his name is, late night guy. He's begging people for comments. And, and I was thinking, I was thinking all day, there's nothing really I want to say. This is like such a strange thing. But I realized that the racial overtones are extraordinary. Uh, this is a black guy hitting a black guy and, and defending a black woman. And if you were to change one racial element, it, would, it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, if it was a white I mean, if Amy Schumer made made the joke, well, Smith wouldn't have gone up and slapped her, you know, just just switch out one white person in any of that. The dynamics would have been would have been very changed. And I felt like I was watching. I felt like I was outside of it and watching black culture do its thing. The, the whole Academy Awards was a very black experience. And and, and so the slap occurred in that larger context. And I thought the, the next, uh, P. Diddy, I think he said, you know, hey, Chris, hey, you know, hey, Will, let's, let's, let's go 
work this out at the party, you know, between the family. Well, you know, and it was, it, it, it seemed like it was a, an internal family myth, you know, a kerfuffle. And, and it's like, that's my reaction. But the world is going crazy. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> I think it's crazy. I, the idea that an actor sitting at the Academy Awards is roasted by a comedian, which happens every single year, especially right. if you're one of the uber famous people sitting in the front few rows, that you could just get up out of your seat and slap a comedian on stage go back and sit in your seat and then 10 minutes later win an award for best actor. I just think that's so crazy. I think he should have been escorted out of there th the second he walked up on stage and hit him. Why why do you why do you say so? Why do you think he should have been escorted out? Because you can't just go up and hit a comedian for telling a joke even if you don't like the joke. You know, it, he signed up for this. If I go to a comedy club tomorrow, and the comedian on stage makes a joke uh, at my expense or even at my wife's expense, I'm not going to get up on the stage and assault that person. If I'm really that offended, I'll leave. But I know going in there, hey, we kind of signed up for this. We're here to laugh and have a good time. And also the fact that they're both in tuxedos makes it even crazier to me. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, to me, it's to me, it. It seemed extraordinary and strange, but the more I think about it, it seems understandable. Uh, I don't think so. Tiffany, I totally... Haddish, Tiffany, Tiffany Haddish applauded Will Smith. He says, it's about time a black man finally stood up for a black woman around here. And see me, that's, that's the black community talking about what it's like being in the black community. And to me, that this whole context, you, you can't put, you know, if you can't, it's, in, I think it's inco incorrect or it's going to be inaccurate to say, well, if, if, if a comedian, if I was, a, if I was in a comedy club and a comedian made a joke about my wife, you know, no, 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 no. You're a white guy. If you're in a black, if you're a black guy in a black comedy club and everybody in the club is black, there's going to be a, there's different rules. In the same way that black comedians can say the N-word with impunity and white guys don't even think twice about it. Different rules. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I guess you don't understand what you don't understand. But you're certainly in the majority. Most, pe most people are greatly offended by what Will Smith did. But, and part of it, too, is you just have a class of people that don't have to follow rules. Will Smith is just so famous that he could do whatever he wants without any punishment. If I'm at any awards show, not that I would be at one, but no one is going to let me get up on stage when I'm not allowed to in the first place. And they're definitely not going to let me get up on stage and assault a performer. That's you. Yeah. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't let you. No, no, because no, I'm not Will Smith. No, you're not. Well, maybe one day I'll get there. I'm just... The Academy Awards is a club. It's, it's you know, welcome to the country club. It's, you know, we're letting the world peak, take a peek at us. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, if something that's happened a, that's in a interesting. private club. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, I was thinking about why are, why are movie, why are actors and movies and TV celebrities, celebrities? And it's, it's like nobody respects politicians. 
So forget them. Book authors just write books. They're never in front of a camera. So forget them. Uh, yeah, who else? Who else is going to have a national platform be recognized by the public? Who else is in the public domain? It's it's Hollywood. It's what we got, and it's a unit. It's a unifying. So you know, there's some brings some kind of unity. Um, I'm interested too in terms of the black community. A lot of commentary that I heard today was the importance of hair from the speakers who were all black women that were talking that I heard today. And it's like, wow, your hair is worth defending in a public format? You gotta be kidding me. Really? I said, whoa, okay. That's one more way that's different. That's, I'm, the black world is is different than the world I live in. Speaking of the world you live in, yeah, let's get right to the woo woo. Okay, let's go for it. Fasten Nin- your seatbelts. <laughs> Nineteen ninety, you enrolled in the Ramtha. Am I saying that correctly? Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. School of Enlightenment. Indeed, I did. Can you, you did. tell us about uh, what that is? Who that is? And what's okay. going on there? Yeah. Well, Ramtha is a i don't know who he is i mean i can tell you what he tell he what he has said he is but i i don't know if what he's telling me is the truth um but i can tell you my observation and my sense of him ramtha is some kind of entity spiritual entity interdimensional entity okay who channels through a woman by the name of jay-z knight and jay-z stands for judith 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 Zebra is her nickname, who lives in Yelm, Washington. And the channeling experience that they manifest together is that his personality, his persona, and consciousness moves into her body, and her consciousness goes somewhere else. She, she just says, I go to the light. What's the light? I don't know what light, where it is. I don't know, you know. And she stays there for a while and she comes back. When she comes back, she doesn't have any memory of anything going on, which she experiences being very uncomfortable because she wants to she wants to learn what Ramtha was telling everybody that night. So it's like, tell me, tell me, tell me. You know, so she has her own, she has her own mixed re- response to being a channel. Um, the, the money's good, which is good for her. But um, so anyway, Ramtha comes from somewhere and is in her body and it's a wonderful experience because i find him to be pretty smart in fact he's the smartest guy i've ever i've ever been in his company and myself excluded no he's smarter than you <laughs> and and he, and uh he's he's a worthy teacher and he has a very masculine persona and to see a a five foot two cute blonde woman walking around the stage with command presence and the presentation of a warrior ramtha clearly as soon as you see him the first the first experience i had of ramtha when he came out on the stages that man knows how to command a million men in battle he doesn't fuck around 
And then when you see Jay-Z Knight as Jay-Z when she's back in her own body, she's just a cutesy tootsie body. <laughs> you know, she flips her hair, you know, she's flirty, she works it, you know, she's manipulative. <laughs> she's she's a hot mess, she's a wreck, you know. That's been my personal experience of her. She's not, I respect her greatly for running the school and for doing the channeling. But other than that, you know, I'd be hard pressed to give her the time of day. But that's that's my own personal reaction to her. Some people love her dearly, and you know, God bless them. Anyway, um, I first heard about Ramps in 1988, and I was living in New York. And for two years, I commuted from New York out to Yelm, Washington, to go to like weekend retreats or a week long retreat and things like that. And I uh, had the time and the money to be able to do that. I was living in New York. I grew up in New York. I went to Chaminade High School in Mineola with me and Bill, me and Billy, you know. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How did you hear about this? Were you looking for this sort of thing? No, the information? I, in 1988, during the 80s, I had a business cleaning beaches. And I also, I had modified potato harvesters. And instead of harvesting potatoes, I was able to use them to harvest garbage uh, on the beach or debris or anything like that. So there is these sifting plates with holes in them and conveyor blades bringing the material up over the plates and whatever went through the holes in the plates went back on the beach and whatever didn't went back in the hopper and that's how I removed things. And New York was a beautiful place to do that because we had a lot of beaches, a lot of garbage and a lot of people who want to use the beaches and they had a lot of money to pay for. It. So, you know, you had the four, the four things that made my business very very lucrative. And I also found that I could use the, the machines to pick rocks and horse tracks. So I became a freelance rock picker. Uh, and I would go up and down the whole East Coast, and did a lot of work in Virginia and the Carolinas. And, I, you know, I followed the winter like, uh, like the horses, a lot of horse, not only did people go south to Florida in the wintertime, horses go south. So I and so there's plenty of training tracks in, in the south. And Georgia and Louisiana and Alabama and Florida. So I I'd pick rocks down there. What were you using to pull the equipment? I used a pickup truck. I had a, um, I had a one ton dually Ford F-350. Beast of a, beast of a machine. Oh, beautiful. 11 miles to the gallon, but did the job. So anyway, uh, I commuted out and on my 40th birthday in September of 1990, uh, 1989, I made an announcement to the family. I said, I'm moving to Yale. And uh, over the next few months, I worked out the details. And I was living with a woman, living with her for 14 years. And um, she did, she was not comfortable at all with my whole move in, in this direction towards Ramtha and spirituality and unlimitedness and consciousness and healing yourself and mind over matter. She could just see me getting crazier and crazier day by day. And it's like, I'm, oh, what is he doing? Oh, what is he going to say next? <laughs> Let me interrupt you real quick. I, I messed up uh, my question by asking what sort of pickup truck you were driving, but um, what, what, got you really started into this you said you discovered it in 88 but i really want to know like how you discovered it and those that first trip to ramtha okay so i'm cleaning beaches and picking rocks and i have an off season i'm not doing a whole lot of work in october and november just ones and twosies you know a one-off going down to 
Virginia come back. And I get a newsletter in the mail, unsolicited, that is, it says it's Windwards. And it's a 30-page tabloid. It's fairly substantive. So it's not as big as a regular newspaper. It's tabloid size. And it's the Windwards is the words of the Lord of the Wind. And Ramtha calls himself the Lord of the Wind. Uh, because his first out-of-body experience that he says he had was when he experienced himself as being the wind. So that's where the Windward's tabloid comes up. And I started reading it, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And then I started reading what's, uh, some accounts from some of the people that were moving to Yelm to study with Ramtha, and they were pretty out there. And I remember shoveling the newspaper off my lap as if it was on fire nah! and just throwing it into the garbage because I feel like it was on fire because it just felt so evil and so um, uh, dangerous. And about 20 or 30 minutes later, as if I was in a trance, I just got up from my desk and I walked out to the garbage and dusted off all the bacon grease and coffee grinds that were on it and, and cleaned it up and brought it back and I read it. And I avoided the articles about people who were talking about the end of the world, end times, the, uh, the politics of the country and of the world. And I just started reading about Ramtha. And what Ramtha had to say in that particular issue really resonated with me and it had everything to do with the environment. And he started talking about earth changes, as he called them, the days to come. And his analysis of the state of the world, particularly in terms of climate change, was remarkable, comprehensive, and detailed. By 1988, through the beach cleaning, I had become radicalized in the environmental movement. And I was working very, very heavily in the environmental movement in New York, because that was the summer that we had the first medical waste wash-ups on the shores of New York. And I did a lot of investigation. I didn't do a lot of cleaning because nobody went to the beach. So the beaches didn't have to be cleaned. And picking up a syringe off a beach, the best way to pick up a syringe off a beach is with your fingers. Um, and that's what was being done. And we didn't, machines have a tendency to break things and push things into the sand and crush things and make a mess of things, which you really need for really precision glass, you know, like metal uh, glass syringes and stuff is just the personal touch. And beach owners quickly learned that if they sent their lifeguards out to walk up and down the tide line every day in the morning before anybody got there and pick up all the syringes and put them in a bag and throw them away and not tell anybody, everybody was good. People could come back to the beach. At least they could get a suntan or whatever, you know, and that's how the and I saw all this happening. So I saw and I went to a lot of conferences and really it was my first introduction. I, and I started talking to a lot of people involved in uh, the um, uh, the EPA, New York State uh, Department of Environmental Conservation, a lot of people doing the research. Where are the syringes coming from? What are we going to do about it? How many are there? We're going to get more tomorrow. What, you know, when is it going to end? Is there ever going to be an end? All this kind of stuff. And I found out that actually what was happening and was known at the grunt level in all of the agencies 
that the syringes were placed in the water deliberately to sabotage criminal investigations. And it was a, um, an end run around the system by people who had access to a lot of medical waste, who could, who could say to the prosecutors, you want to be able to go swimming? You're going to have to drop the lawsuit. And that's what was done. And it was all covered up. And that's when I first, be, that was my first experience with governmental cover-up and media complicity and talk and, and becoming an investigative journalist. I didn't write about it then. I only wrote about it later, but it was my first experience about how the world really works, as they say. This is how it really is. And, and, the, and the Catholic Church was involved. And I believe that the medical waste crisis of 1988 in the metropolitan New York area was resolved probably in the chancellery of the archbishop of the cardinal of the, the diocese of New York City. And you had all the major players. You had all of them, uh, all the mafia people involved because all medical waste was being carted out by the mafia people. And um, I don't think it was the mafia dons or the mafia organizations, the truck drivers and things like that doing it because they were making they were making 40 they were making 40 grand a garbage truck picking up all the syringes in new york and all the medical waste in new york city and running it down to an incinerator mass burn incinerator in south carolina it was probably some freelancers uh that were kind of making some money on the side like with veterinarians and uh, mom and pop shops and things like that that would do uh, emergent care kind of things at any rate um that got me involved in the environment. I was really passionate about it. Ramtha comes along, he starts telling me about sea level rise. And I had already heard about sea level rise. I was one of the, I was, because of all my environmental contacts, I knew that the water in New York Harbor was already a foot higher than it was in 1865, when the Union Navy was beginning to do surveys of the water so that they could build the forts to protect New York Harbor from the Confederates. Um, and so in 1988, the waters in New York were already a foot higher. And as I went to more and more conferences and was talking about all of the stuff that I've just mentioned, the cover-ups and the, the syringes and the garbages and my, and my machines and how I did it and, and the, whole, the whole nine yards about cleaning beaches, the whole, for me, the whole experience, um, I was sought after as a public speaker. So this was my first public speaking. And I remember flying down uh, from New York to Charleston, South Carolina for a conference and sitting next to an engineer from the Port Authority of New York who started telling me about how he and his team was preparing the New York Harbor installations for sea level rise and how nobody in government, in the politicians wanted to hear anything about it. And he says, if we get a hurricane up the wazoo, we're going to have a billion dollars worth of damage in 1988. It's going to wipe everything out because this, the surge, the tide and everything like that. So we really had an advanced conversation about sea level rise and the nature of tornadoes. And Ramtha just completely matched that and took it further. And I go, Ramtha is somebody that I want to 
learn more from. I want to hear, I want to read what he's written. I want to hear what he has to say. This guy's on to something and I really want to match him. And that led to all of the stuff in consciousness and all of the, you know, what is reality? Why are we here? Where'd we come from? Where are we going? Are we going back there? Or are we going somewhere else? Who are we? How did we be who we are? What is the soul? What is the spirit? What is mind? Well, I was going, whoa, okay. He's got, this guy's got a lot to talk about. And the more that I heard, the more I got fascinated. And then I started going to some workshops and some conferences. And when I saw him walk across the stage and he said, I need to command a million men in battle. I said, he's my guy. He's my kind of guy. So the first conference or event you went to, was it in Yelm? No, it was actually in Hartsfield Airport in the Hilton uh, at Hartsfield in Atlanta. Um, and the place was packed. There was a you thousand flew from New York to Atlanta in, to go. I, I, I flew from New York to Atlanta. I uh, flew in, uh, spent, a, I think it was an overnight. I think it was a two-day thing, Saturday or Sunday, and I came back on Sunday. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. And um, it, it, at that conference, Ramtha taught me and taught us a, uh, a technique, um, a meditative technique, and um, some basic theories about what to do with it all. And uh, I found it relevatory. Um, he called it, he calls it a consciousness and energy technique. He doesn't call it meditation. He says, I hate that word because uh, meditation implies quietude and emptying your mind. And he said, no, no, no. He says, I'm not about that at all. I mean, I, you know, what I'm about is filling your mind, making your mind active. Uh, he's a man of, he's a man of doing, you know, and, uh, and I love that. I, I, I wasn't too much for the Buddhists and uh, sitting on top of uh, the mountaintop or anything like that. Um, so this consciousness and energy, and it's, it's very similar from what I hear when people describe some of the breath work that people, different kinds of breath work now are being developed for energizing your body, energizing your mind, really moving uh, internal energies around and developing neurological, you know, really it's stimulating and amplifying your neurological development and creating new synapses and all that, that that's, that's right up Ramtha's alley. So, and I was all for that. And um I found it wonderful and uh, had enough physical sensations from it that, boy, something's really going on. Sometimes like my, my body would just go, I just, I would have these unconscious physical responses. I said, man, something's going on. So it was more than just feeling good. It was, it was a very, comp for me, it was a very comprehensive experience. So I just wanted more of it. And to get more of it, I decided to go to Yelm. And you said the reaction to your family oh. was rough. Oh, it's like, <laughs> when I drove across, so I had, I, I, I sold my business to my employees um, and the woman who bought the, the, the primary owner who bought it, bought it had a bad knee. So she couldn't use the, the F-350 one ton dually uh, because it was stick shift. So I kept it and I bought a trailer, I bought a big RV trailer. And that's where I was living when I, when I left my family and started making the plans to go out to Yelm and to drive across country. I drove my F-350. And as I drove across the Hudson River and I'm on the George Washington Bridge, I looked in the rearview mirror and I realized there was nobody in my rearview mirror that wanted me to knock on their door ring their, or give them a ring on the phone. 
after 40 years of living in Long Island, New York, no, everybody thought I was gone. He's, he's, he's gone to the dark side. He's, he's joined the cult. He's, he's just too out there. We always knew he was kind of out there, but he really went out there now. So, and that was important for me. I found that my experience of, of, uh, of personal change, of personal evolution. If you want to make big changes in your life, you're probably going to have to go into isolation um, because the people who are in your life have relationships with you and the people who depend on you and the people who expect you to be a certain way, they're going to kind of like, no, 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 don't change too much. You know, they're going to try to settle the waters. But if you want to really make big changes, you're going to have to uh, go go to the desert, you know, be by yourself. When you showed up in Yelm, how many people were living there? Quite a few. Um, whenever, so Jay-Z, the events were held, are held in a very large horse arena. And, and in fact, I knew the fellas who picked the rocks, who had the machines, who picked the rocks in Jay-Z's horse arena. Um, and which I thought was really, you know, <laughs> synchronicity. Yeah. And, um, so they, she turned her indoor equestrian arena into a teaching arena and a thousand people could fit in there comfortably. And uh, that's where we held the sessions. And oftentimes there'd be so much demand, there'd be like, you know, retreat number one and the next retreat would be, you know, retreat number one A. And, you know, so if you didn't make the first cut, you go to the next one kind of thing. Uh, and a lot of them, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people. And it was estimated that there were approximately 10,000 people living in the Elm area uh, that were uh, going to the school, had been to the school, were thinking about going to the school, whatever, so that they were school affiliated in some, in some regard. And uh, now it's a worldwide thing. I mean, there's people, there's people, I've, I've met people from China. Um, in fact, I met a woman who was working as an IT specialist in the Chinese army at school. So, you know, I'd love to hear, I'd love to know more about her story about how she went from Beijing or, you know, Quanju or wherever she was, got herself to Yelm, Washington for a week's retreat and then got back like, <laughs> what happens when you go back to work <laughs> at the Red Army? <laughs> it's like, whoa, you know. Over so, the next few years, how much time did you spend there? Uh, quite a bit. Um, I went, uh, so when I left New York, I sold my business and I got a share of uh, the equity that was in the house that uh, the woman I had been living with. We had, we had a relationship for 14 years and um, we had bought a house together. So I went out to Yelm with 70 grand in my pocket. And so I didn't have to work right off the bat, which was great. And um, and that's when I began telling stories and writing down stories. I'd always been like a rock on tour, the fellow around the campfire when you're drinking beer or smoking a cigar. You know, I got a good story to tell you. And, uh, and, I, and I did that kind of thing. I was a, the family entertainer growing up. Um, and that was my salvation because on every other way, I was the black sheep of the family. I was the weird, the weird one and always getting into trouble or getting other people into trouble and you know, the nun, then my mother would have to go up and talk to the nuns, <laughs> you know, get old Brucey back into school again. And, 
Um, so I, I was a storyteller. And, and so I started writing the stories down and tried to make a go of it as a st professional storyteller and did that for many, many years. And ultimately, I ended up in 1997 as the National Storyteller of the Year, second runner up. So, you know, um, I wrote that down because I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. What is the Storyteller of the Year competition? It's a it's an artifice in some ways. It's a group of storytellers who have banded together and saying, let's let's have a storytelling festival and we'll call it the storyteller of the year competition and people will ask them people for you know 25 bucks an entry fee and have them send us a story and we'll uh, and we'll hire ourselves out to the state fair so uh the state fair was always looking for you know new cheap entertainment so uh i showed up uh 1997 at black look ohio to tell stories what story did you tell that got you? Uh, what got what got me into the competition and the story I told was uh, being audited by the IRS in, when I moved to Yelm. Um, and um, the reality is, is that, um, um, so as a beach cleaner, I was someone who owned a business. And so my, la my last summer was the summer of 1989. So as I filed my income tax for 1989, I declared like $250,000 worth of business. I didn't make, I only put 30 grand in my pocket, but my gross was 250. And, um, and then when I got to Yelm and was just telling stories and was getting paid that $10 a story, you know, to be in a magazine or something like that, I, uh, I only made $297 that next year, 1990, when I filled out my income tax for 1990, but I was too embarrassed to put $297 on the 1040. So I bloated it up to 324. Somehow I felt much more comfortable with 324. I added, so I added $26 or something like that. At any rate, my anxiety, I got audited because they saw me going from $250,000 down to 300. <laughs> so I got audited. And, um, and I, I went in really nervous because I had lied on my income tax <laughs> by bloating it to a higher level. And uh, so I'm coming in with a tape recorder uh, to record it, you know, because, you know, and also I'm a Rampler student and, and, and we felt like the world was against us. And, you know, we were looking, we were kind of paranoid looking over our shoulders at the government and everything. So uh, um, I walk in with my tape recorder and the auditor says, ah, you're going to record this? I said, yes, I am. And she says, well, if you're going to record it, I'm going to have to get a neutral third-party observer to, uh, to monitor our conversation. And she went off. She came back about 10 minutes later with another woman uh, named Margaret, uh, who uh, had a big, had, like a lot of files under her arm. And I figured she was another auditor and just got pulled out of another office. Sits down and, and uh, my auditor said, Mr. Smith, can you please explain your business practices as a storyteller? And, um, you know, because the United States government thinks that uh, if you're doing all the things you say you're doing, like telling stories and selling your stories and being a writer and, and uh, uh, being a folk singer, uh, we think the you know, U.S. government thinks you should be making more than $300 a year. And I said, you know, funny that my mother says that, too. And um, the neutral third party observer, as I began to describe my storytelling, 
the neutral third party observer leans over to the auditor and, and then turns to me and says, uh, excuse me, Mr. Smith, have you ever told stories at the Wolfhaven Wildlife Sanctuary? I said, oh, yeah, it's a great gig. I got paid 30 bucks, 35 bucks a night. And you howl with the wolves and this campfire. And I told stories and I sang a few songs like uh, um, leaving on a jet plane and stuff like that. And she goes back to she turns she turns to the audience. She goes, I heard him tell stories. He's really very good. I didn't recognize him because it was dark, but the voice is very distinctive. <laughs> he really is a storyteller. <laughs> so they let me go. So what I wrote a story are. about that. As I'm driving away from the IRS, I had a song. It said, and it goes, don't you give up your song, even though the night is long. You don't know who's listening and needs you to go on. Sometimes you give it a rest. Sometimes you give it your best. Sometimes there's a knock on the door. Sometimes uh, you get ignored. And so I sent that off and Black Lick, Ohio called me. So I said, okay, I'll be there. So I drove across country, to tell stories. Speaking of being a storyteller, when I was uh, perusing your website, The Mountain News, for this interview, I found a story about you working a Dixie Chicks concert oh, right yeah. after they were, you know, canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought that reading it, I was like, this is so well written and such an interesting story. And of course, I know you. So when I'm reading it, I'm reading it in your voice in my head. So that definitely helps out a lot. But what was that experience like for you? Were you a fan of the Dixie Chicks at all before they came to Tacoma, right? I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I love the Chicks. Um, in fact, the reason I was working the show uh, was at the Key Arena in Seattle. And this is like 2003-ish, something like that. I had already moved from Elm to Nashville, Tennessee to work on my storytelling and my singing and my guitar playing, the whole package. I wanted to become a stage performer. I wanted to work on my career as a performer. And I, to pay the bills in Nashville, um, the only thing I could get was carpentry work. And I was not a very good carpenter at all. I was very lousy. Um, in fact, my, my, my first boss says, you call yourself a carpenter? I says, look, if I don't call myself a carpenter, all you're going to do is give me a broom and tell me to sweep up. You know, that's it. You know, he says, yeah, all right. He says, well, he said, you know, Bruce, you, you, you don't know shit. But basically, there's one thing about you that I do like. If I tell you something to do, I know you're going to do it. And if I show you how to do it, I know you're going to learn. And you're going to stay with it. You're not going to walk away or, you know, go off for a smoke break or anything like that. He says, yeah, I respect that. So I'm giving you some slack here. So, you know, and um, so that, that all worked out. And I found that I could get a lot of work as a stagehand for the same kind of reasons. First of all, I could work certain venues and certain gigs because I didn't have any visible tattoos. Still don't. I don't have any tattoos. And I had reliable transportation and I had a professional work ethic. In fact, the very first stagehand gig I got was to work on uh, Al Gore's announcement uh, for the presidential run in 2000. That was my very first, my very first gig. And I got the job because I had a car to get there. And, I, and the requirement was no visible tattoos. And, um, and so I got the job. So I was 50 feet away from Al Gore and Tipper and Social, Social Secret Service and Yada, yada, yada. So it was kind of exciting. And, um, and I love being a stagehand. I loved working backstage. And I loved being 30 feet from the microphone to see 
how the pros did it, how the celebrities really do it, and who they are, and uh, what it takes to be famous and successful and have a career. It was very educational. I loved it. And I when I came back, I, I never stopped going to the Ramsey School, so I would commute from Nashville to, to Yelm. When I moved back after two years, um, I started working for the union in Seattle as a state champ, which is the Dixie Chicks. And uh, I love working for the union. The, the difference between working for a union in Seattle and the crews that I was working for in Nashville is different between night and day, between the professionalism and the age of the guys and the seriousness and the pay scale and everything like that. The union, you know, union makes a big difference. So um, working for the chicks, I first heard, I, and the chicks ruled back in those days, the chicks ruled Nashville. They were the number one act, totally. And when Natalie said her thing about um, George Bush, W, and the Iraq War, um, the song, The Traveling Soldier, was number one on the country stations. And the day after, it was taken off the air. I mean, so the chicks, the chicks' career just crater just fell off a cliff boom and so they said goodbye to the dixie and uh literally because now they're known as the chicks and uh went on a tour of to for to play for the people who wanted to hear them and uh you know come into the cities seattle and uh, uh it was a great concert oh the, the the dixie chicks one of the most creative most talented group of performers that I ever worked for. I remember this footage of uh, on the news of like a, a steamroller rolling over a pile of like their CDs and merchandise. Yeah. And yeah. even I, I was probably 16, 17, 18 at the time, something like that. And even then I remember thinking, you idiots, you already bought those. Like you already bought it. Why are you going to destroy something you already bought? Fine, don't buy their next album. But what's the point in destroying the album that you already bought that you liked yesterday? Ridiculous. Can you separate a person from their art? Yeah, not completely. How about Will Smith? I'm still going to go see his movies if I want to. I still want to see uh, King Richard. I haven't seen that yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of Will Smith movies. It's not like now I'm going to tell you, you know what? I Am Legend actually sucks now. No, it's still still a cool movie that I enjoy. I, I think it's ridiculous. I had a friend once, like Taylor Swift said something that he didn't agree with. And he was like, you know what, man? I'm never going to listen to her music anymore. And I was like, dude, if you are not going to listen to the music of someone because they're more liberal than you, you're not going to have that many choices in music. And I, I just think that's ridiculous. Like I'll, you know, I'm dancing if a Michael Jackson song came, comes on. I'll probably still sing I Believe I Could Fly by R. Kelly. I'm not like endorsing all the actions of that person by watching their movie or reading their book. Well, that's I, I, what you're describing is one element of what I see as a new aesthetic in the United States, in the world, where emotions, how you feel about something has become more important and it's become uh, critical to express it. And that's part of what Will Smith did uh, last, you know, Sunday night. Um, the whole thing about, uh, you know, the insurrection and uh, stealing the election, you know, the big lie and, and all of this. 
Um, I am surrounded by Trumpers and QAnon people and anti-vaxxers. I am really uh, singular in my world that, that, that I move around in. And um, what my understanding is of what's going on is, is that all of these little triggers like uh, Taylor Swift saying something and I'm not going to listen to her music anymore. You know, there's, there's a, there's some kind of triggering experience that resonates because of a deeper experience. And so it's, what's really, it's not really important about whether the uh, messenger RNA vaccines actually work or not or dangerous. It's some kind of fear of the vaccines and the process that the vaccines were developed that triggers some other experience. So like, I'm good. I'm not going to take that. Oh, Trump did Trump was behind it. Nah, forget that. You know, or they didn't, they didn't test it for, they only tested it for nine months. So they crazy. I'm not going to put that in my arm, you know? So that repulsion, that re emotional response, I think comes from something very deep. Last summer I was in a men's group. And all of the men in the group were all Ramtha students, and we're all 70-ish. And we've all been in the school for 30 years plus. And I got kicked out of the group over the vaccine issue because one of the guys was not vaccinated. And I, I exploded. I went off on him, which was unfair. And as I tried to process that for myself, I began to realize from all the things that he had told me about himself, either in the group or privately or the emails and the conversations, the coffee chats we've had hanging out at campfires at his house and things like that. I realized that his way of processing events in the world had triggered for him a feeling that he needed to protect his world, his people. And he was very much identifying with Nazi Germany and the Jews of Nazi Germany, that for him, he was living emotionally in Berlin, 1933, and that he saw all of the suppression of uh, fringe sciences, like a lot of the doctors that were speaking up against the vaccines, he saw that as the equivalent of the book burnings of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And so that he wanted to protect the Jews of today, um, and not just religiously, but um, in terms of a mindset of a perspective that they had, that they were vulnerable um, and were targeted um, by the elites, by the know-it-alls and uh, the snobby, snotty people of the world who are running the CDC and all the bio labs. So you don't, you don't blame cancel culture necessarily. It's just people wanting to, wanting to speak out emotionally on something. It's not that I, I wouldn't say that I don't blame cancel culture. I think there's a lot of cancellation going on. I think there's a lot of disdain. I see it on myself. I, I come from an upper middle class family, upper class 
neighborhood in New York, well-trained, well-educated. Um, I'm a professional. Um, and I know that when I work, oh, I, I could see it as a stagehand, you know, uh, working in Nashville. I, I'd be working with guys who are coming right out of rehab or just, you know, they're on probation on a drug bust. Um, and what they're, what, what's important to them is what they want to talk about is, do you know a good defense attorney or you want to see my new tattoo? Um, and just the look on my face. And it's like, no, I don't want to, to be honest with you. No, I don't want to see your new tattoo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, uh, well, I hope you find a good attorney, you know, no, I, I can't really recommend that. You know, and, and they just know that I'm not one of them. And so I could see, I mean, I, and I, I think that kind of um, snobbery at the very least continues. I, the, bl the blindness, when I, when I go to uh, conferences new, for newspaper journalists, oh, I remember back in 1916, uh, uh, 2016, I, I, was, I was in a room in Seattle, room, uh, people from the Seattle Times, all the, all the NBC, ABC news reporters and things like that. And I'm telling them, you know, Trump can win this. You know, th this is in the summer of 2016. And I said, you people are not listening to the average guy in the street. When I when I talked to at the time at that time, uh, I didn't I didn't have enough money to keep a vehicle on the road. So I was bumming rides from a lot of people and I was getting rides from like paratransit to go to the doctors and things like that. The paratransit drivers, even, you know, they're from they're from from uh, Saudi Arabia or Jordan or Lebanon. I mean, their skin is pretty dark. You know, they're, they're, you know, and they're speaking with an Arabic accent and they're all for Trump. And I go, you know, we, your skin's a lot darker than mine. And I'm here to tell you, Donald doesn't have your best interests at heart. And I said, oh no, he's, 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 he's gonna speak to, he's gonna champ, he's, he's gonna work for us. And I would tell the newspaper reporters from the Seattle Times, they thought I was crazy. I said, oh. so, and they didn't want, then they didn't want to talk to me. That's, you never, you, you're the most alone when you're in a room full of people that don't want to talk to you. Oh yeah, that's definitely that, true. That is, that is, that, that, that challenges the soul. It was funny at the time I was working for direct TV. So right. I was going into, you know, I could go into five, six different homes a day. And I, I traveled for work. So I could be, you know, in, in Boise, Idaho one week. And then the next week I'm in Medford, Oregon. Oh, and good old Medford. <laughs> I remember that time period, people wanted to talk about the election, the upcoming election more than anything else. Yeah. And, you know, as a direct TV employee who was paid by the job at the time, that's the last thing I wanted to do was have that conversation with you. So I sort of adopted the strategy where, I would agree with everything that person said. So I would go into one house and a, a guy would be like, uh, hey, so are you going for Trump or Hillary? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not really sure. And then I'd talk to him for a second and get the vibe like, oh, he's going for Hillary. So then I would just start bashing Trump and he would be like, oh, yeah, you're the man. I love you. You know it all. And the next house I'd go there and you know, some lady would ask me the same question. Oh, the upcoming election, blah, blah, blah. And I could tell, you know, I think she's going for Trump. So I just start bashing Hillary. 
And then she'd be, oh, you're the greatest. I totally agree with you. You're right about everything. And it was, no, I'm just repeating what you're saying to me. Which is what she wanted. You give the customer what they want. Darren, you are so good with that. <laughs> it was interesting because some of my coworkers would engage like, yeah, you know, I think we need to vote for Trump, blah, blah, blah. But then, the, you know, half the time they would do that, they'd get a bad review on them. Like this guy came to my house. He was an obvious Hillary supporter or he was an obvious Trump supporter. And I was like, I, the last thing I want is like for a group of people to not like me because of, I have a different view than them. So I just had exactly the same view as everyone else. Worked out pretty well for me at the time. All right. Enough about politics. The democratization of media. Is that good or bad? You know, anyone can have uh, a podcast now. Any dummy could have two of them now even. Look at me. Anyone can have a YouTube channel. Uh, YouTube is everywhere. It's not like you're given an opportunity to be on your local public broadcast channel that, you know, maybe some people in the local area happen to tune into. You could make a product and put it out and almost everyone in the world can consume that. Is that good or bad? Oh, it's almost irrelevant whether I think it's good or bad, but, but I'll say something. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the world we live in where people need affirmation. So they're going to find the news or the information, the Facebook post, the the Twitter blast or whatever that makes it, that resonates. Resonation is critical. The bigger issue I have is disinformation and misinformation and propaganda. And re- everything is all related. But the question is I, that I have is how, how do you protect the public? Basic, how do you protect the public from themselves? Which is an elitist thing to say. And a lot of people are influenced by propaganda. I'm astonished at the number of people that I've heard in broadcast, news broadcasts from Ukraine who are talking to a family member, talking to their mother back in Moscow. Now, the kid, the kid is in Odessa or Kiev or something, and, and they have the phone right there, and it's being translated. And, you know, my, mom, you know, my house just got blown up. The Russians just blew up my house with a missile. And, and the mother saying, no, it wasn't the Russians. It had to have been the Ukrainians. I said, mom, I'm telling you, it was the Russians. You know, the tanks are right out there. I saw the tanks. And I said, no, no, we're being told that it's the Nazis that are, you know, we're going in to denazify the country. And the amount of brainwa- brainwashing, the amount of conditioning that people have um, is incredible. A lot of Russians have a profound need to believe in Vladimir Putin. And even when their family members are telling them something that's contrary to what they're hearing on the the Russian news, it's more important for them to hold on to their fearless leader and their self-identity, their identity as a Russian, their identity as who they are as a person is more important to them than having a relationship with their children and believing their children and supporting their children. And there's a lot of that going on. The woman who that, that I talked about 
who asked me, are there any topics that are that I shouldn't ask you about tomorrow is is a fanatic for telling her family members the truth of everything as she knows it. And her family members can't stand her. They hate her guts because she's always ramming some theory down their throats. Drinking your urine will cure your breast cancer. You know, mom, that's crazy. You know, to the point where she's totally isolated now. None of her family want to talk to her. That kind of fanaticism, she's not alone. There's a lot of people like that. And I see it in the ramp to school. Jay-Z Knight is publicly calling for a civil war. I mean, she's ready to grab her guns and put on her camel gear and, quote, go where I'm needed. And uh, she wants the militia to reinstate uh, Donald Trump and as president and stuff like that. And she's publicly calling for this. And it's like, what happened to the school of enlightenment? You know, you know, so I haven't, so at this, at this point, I, I don't, I don't buy anything from RSE. I don't want to give another dime to Jay-Z. She, she just turns around and gives it to Trump for something. She said she gave Trump 50 grand in his election last time around. She sent 10 grand to uh, Steve Bannon to go build the wall. So I don't want to give Jay-Z any of my, any of my money. So, and, and I haven't gone. For me, I've been associated with the Ramp to the School for 30 years, but only the first 20 was I an active student. And for me, I went through a transformative period about 10 years ago, and I'm still going through it. Um, and that is basically standing on my own two feet, learning what I've learned about mindfulness, about being unlimited. I call it the process of becoming God-realized and um, uh, of integrating everything that I learned from Ramtha in my life. And I haven't gone to, I haven't gone to any events in several years. And, uh, and I was not active for the past. I wouldn't say that I was active at school for the past 10. So uh, that's my Ramtha story. That's my. It's kind of a sad ending to it. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a degree of, I suppose, I never thought of it as sadness, but yeah, because it was a fantastic home. I, when I would, I, I tell you, Darren, when I would go to events, I didn't want to leave. I, I just, I was enthralled by my experience, what I was learning, what I, what I could see, what I would perceive, what I was being able to accomplish. We, we had exercises that you could really see accomplishment, like being blindfolded and um, being led into the woods and then being told to use your mindfulness and to use the C and E techniques of of moving energy and of blowing and uh, energizing one's body and really helping your mind move into new realms of awareness so that you can get yourself out of the woods and then get yourself into a, a structure that we called, it's basically a labyrinth that was made out of these plastic panels and, and aluminum bars and things like that. And it had all kinds of passageways and things. And, you know, and um, there was a place called the void that you had to find yourself. So you just focus on the void. What is the void? Well, it's a no thing. You know, how do you focus on a no thing? <laughs> you know, and uh, so that's really 
for me, it was the experience of going to absolute elsewhere. So really leaving the world behind as we know it, the world that then the mind, the, the kind of mind and the kind of neural, neurological activity that we're in right now, as you and I are talking and, and interacting with each other and listening and thinking and stuff like that, it's the kind of mind that we use to, to go to work and to pay the bills and to raise our kids and, you know, and all those kinds of things. There's another kind of mindfulness, which is really absolutely elsewhere. And it's that transcendental kind of thing. And I revel in that. Growing up, my father used, I was, I, you know, uh, this is not strange in, in some ways. My family should not be surprised, but by who, how I, how I turned out, because even growing up, my father would say, Bruce, get your head out of the clouds. Come on, get your feet on the ground. Come on, get real, get a good job, get up, pay your bills. You gotta, you know. <laughs> you know. Sorry, dad. I like the clouds. <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> what can I tell you? Why do you think, especially in the last 10 years, that the conspiracy theory crowd or even the woo-woo the crowd has tended to lean real hard right? Is, is that something that's always existed or? I suspect so. Um, it's also perhaps a, an unconscious response to instability that the world is increasingly unstable and untrustworthy. Um, climate change is a major, even if even people who deny it uh, are still thinking about it. And so maybe the move to the right and authoritarianism, you know, we need somebody to fix it. And, um, and, 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 I, and, and I, I see myself as a as one voice to counter that by saying we don't need a strong man or a strong woman because we can be strong enough for ourselves if we we individually are unlimited and to be able to get some practical manifestation from that philosophy so that idea that attitude okay i'm unlimited now what do i do with it you know how how, how does it manifest uh where, where's my unlimited wealth where's where's my unlimited health how come my teeth are still falling out you know how come i'm 60 pounds overweight i'm trying to lose weight can i do that my, with my mind it's not easy it's not easy to become to to function as a an awakened person as a god realized individual so it's easier it's more convenient to fall back on someone else someone else strong man will fix it and there's a lot of institutions that uh foster dependency religions foster dependency god you know god is out there god is you're separate from god you're just a human being you know, you can't do shit. You know, God is out there. He'll fix it. Or it's God's will. You know, you have to do it. You have to do it. Or you, you, you are who you are. Or the way things are because it's God's will, you know. And, well, maybe you can pray or talk to the priest. He's kind of like halfway to God, you know. Nah, you know, 
I, I say fully to all of that. I says, you got to sit down and realize I'm a God. I'm a God. I create my reality. And the more responsibility I take in my life for what is going on in my life, I have more power to change my life in a way that I want. And I think, if, and that's, that's my main takeaway from Ram and, and uh, from Ramtha. And, and that's what I focus on every day in my life is creating my day, my life, my world, the way I want it to be. My life is my manifestation. It's my creation. And the car that I drive is the beautiful manifestation of some really savvy engineers in Tokyo. <laughs> to quote Winston Zedmore from Ghostbusters, next time anyone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. All right, Bruce, what happens when we die? Do we die? What dies? It's interesting you should ask because I'm going to go see my 97-year-old mother in these in a couple of weeks and in, in back in New York and take care of her for a few months. Um, swap out with my sister. And death is a topic that we talk about in my family, finally. My mother says, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just wondering what happens next. And so we're talking about what happens next. In short, I don't think there's any death. What does die is the body, but consciousness doesn't die. And, and certainly religions foster the notion that there's elements within us that are vital and critical that do not die, that are eternal. The soul, the spirit. Well, I say, yeah, whatever they are, and I'm not exactly sure what they are, but, con but consciousness seems to be the overarching element of, of our beingness. And that does not die. Uh, and I believe has never died and has, has always been. Um, and that the body that we have is just the current manifestation uh, for certain kinds of experiences that we have these bodies in this realm, in this planet, to, to be able to have all the experiences of life, to, to, to smell and to taste and to, to love and to whistle and make songs and tell jokes and, and make love and to make war and to kill people and to understand what, what passion is all about and hatred and revenge and all of these dynamics of life. You come to this place. This is, this is a school for learning the nitty gritty of what life can be like. Um, and after 80, 90 years worth of schooling, your body's worn out and say, all right, I need a vacation. <laughs> and so then the body goes in the ground, but what doesn't go in the ground is, is spirit and consciousness and it goes elsewhere. And are there, and what is heaven? So the question is, well, we're, when we, when we leave our body and we go elsewhere, what is elsewhere? What does it look like? And I think heaven, I think the afterlife, is vastly complex and comprehensive. And I think there's all kinds of experiences in, in the afterlife, in heaven. I don't, I don't believe in hell at all. I don't believe in the devil. Um, and I think that, um, as I was describing to my mother, one of the most beautiful experiences that my mother ever had in her life was when she went to college, she lived, she went to Smith College and they don't have sororities at Smith College. They have houses and small groups. It's like little tiny miniature communes. And she lived with 16 women 
in a house called the Tenney House. And she, it was really a family to her. This is right, this during World War II. She, she grew up in a working class, busted up family in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, working in the coal yards, uh, the steel yards and, and stuff like that. And during the depression and all that. So she really found a home and a sisterhood with these Tenney girls and they maintained friendships their entire lives. And I said, I said, mom, you know, I kind of think when you die, you're going to go to like a tenny house in the sky. I think you're going to meet some friends. You're going to meet the girls. You're going to, it's going to be nice. It's going to be warm. It's going to be comfy, cozy. You know, dad will be there. You'll see if you, maybe you'll see your sister. I don't know. Maybe not. You know, <laughs> Cause they fought all their entire life. You know, my, my aunt and my mother, they just, <laughs> you know, so, and that's one element and, and a lot of mediums. Like if you, I, I, I love the Long Island medium TV show. I stream that uh, Teresa. I can't, I can't get enough of Teresa Caputo. And Teresa really talks about this, how in the afterlife, there are, uh, familiar faces. There are family members who are, you know, come on over, you know, and they put your arm around you and let me show you around the place. Let me introduce you to people, you know, and uh, it's, it's, that's, I think that's one element of heaven. That's one element of the afterlife, but I think there are more. And I think there's one fascinating book called the afterlife of Billy three fingers uh, written by a woman in uh, Sag Harbor. And she actively channeled her brother, Billy Three Fingers, who was a drug dealer. And um, he, the, 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 the best part of the book for me was, is that he began to describe to her his evolution in heaven as he went through different levels and realms in the afterlife. And he was at, and he became increasingly, he was very chatty initially. And as he said, as, as I learn about myself and as I forgive myself and accept myself and I know more about myself, he said, I'm moving to new realms and I'm meeting new spirits and I'm having new insights and my growth continues. My evolution continues. And it got to the point, the last chapter of the book says, sis, I'm not going to be able to channel with you anymore because I'm leaving all that I am right now that can talk to you. And what comes with me to my next step is not going to be able to communicate me, communicate with you. I'm going to a place beyond words, beyond forming those kinds of thoughts that can can link words together into sentences. He said, my experiences are going to be much more sublime than that. He said, it's been nice knowing you. See you around, kiddo. Great book. Afterlife of Billy Three Fingers. Correct. I think that's the title. Yeah. Seems to have a similar plot line to Albert Brooks defending your life. Have you seen that? You mean the movie? Yeah. With Meryl Streep where she's eating all the pasta she can eat? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. 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 That, that's a yeah. great movie. It's one of my yeah. mom's favorites. Ah, I like your mom. She has good <laughs> taste in movies. All right. Let me talk to you about psychics. You mentioned Teresa Caputo. Am I saying her last yeah. name right? Yeah. Long Island Medium. And then there was John Oliver also. Not John Oliver, John Edwards. I don't. I, you, I heard you mention that in another one of your podcasts. You're talking to uh, Fuller, Scott Fuller. Yes. Yeah, I don't know who John Edwards is. He used to do a TV show 
where there was a, a an audience. My mom used to watch it when when I was little. It was probably mid to late 90s and there was a crowd of people and he would just go like I'm getting Michael Michael and then someone would raise their hand my uncle's name is Michael and he died and then he would start communicating with the dead but I I just I just feel like those people are ripping off people who are desperate to talk to a loved one well they may be my experience with with psychic abilities and this is like hooks up right with remote viewing um is how do you do it and how do you do it well and how do you know when you're off and it's like well maybe it wasn't michael maybe it was michaela (laughs) you know (laughs) and teresa caputo to her credit talks about this a little bit uh, in her shows and for her it's a lot like reading the tea leaves and she said the people that she interacts with are kind of like shadows and there are symbols and she's learned over the years what certain symbols mean that that kind of come up in her mind's eye it's like tele- telepathy uh, in a way uh, like a visual telepathy um and that's what the remote viewing is and that and that's what i write about in my db cooper book when i tried to remote view the db cooper skyjacking did i get anything right I don't know, but it's a starting point, and it certainly gives me a certain perspective. It certainly, for me, reinforced the notion that D.B. Cooper had a lot of significant commando training, because all of the all of the remote viewing that I did on on D.B. Cooper had some form of special forces or military or combat or Vietnam or running around in the woods kind of kind of activity. So, you know. Um, but is or is that just me? Is that just my unconscious mind revealing itself? Um, I don't know. Something's up because when I did the remote viewing, it was painful and exhausting, and I was nauseous and my my head throbbed, and I was out of it for the rest of the day. So something's up. And it got to the point where I could I could not continue my remote viewing by myself. I needed help. And I asked another Ramtha student to come in and do some like remote viewing. Uh, she's a, uh, a trained hypnotherapist and she was leading me in remote viewing-esque guided imagery experiences. It was very comparable. And I thought it was very... Um, very much linked into the whole remote viewing concept. And so I wrote about it. I thought it was legit. But um, yeah, um, a lot of people have needs. One of the things that surprises me with Teresa Caputo is um, how needy her clients are, how emotionally distraught they are. I wasn't there when he died. I spent every day in his hospital room. But as soon as I stepped out to get a bologna sandwich, he died. Oh, how how can you beat yourself up like that? And uh, do people take advantage of that? I'm sure. I mean, this this guy John Edwards. I don't know. He he didn't satisfy you and your criteria for for judging him whether he's legit or not. Teresa Teresa Caputo has plenty of her own detractors, 
and you want to read bad stuff about her, it's plenty of it on the on the internet. But what I see in action, and in fact, I have written an email. I just wrote an email to Teresa Caputo a week ago. I said, look, my mother is ready for a session with you. <laughs> she's 97. She knows she's going to die sometime soon. She wants to know what's next. And I'm telling her about the Tenney house and the girls and maybe dad will be there, you know, and, <laughs> and family, the deceased, you know, some of the ancestors and things like that. And, you know, but, she, you know, my mom doesn't believe anything I say. So, you know, <laughs> especially if she hears it from you, Teresa, you know, she'll, she'll know it's right. You know, you're, you're, cause you're the expert. Me, I'm just her son. I mean, what do I know? <laughs> How do you get into remote viewing? How do I do it? Well, I can tell you what I do. And I can tell you what the Army does in its remote viewing sessions that as as they're described, and there's a whole bunch of books from the Army people. Uh, Joseph Mac, uh, McMonagall has written a ton of books on it. And uh, Dave Morehouse, uh, Psychic Warrior, full description on all that. Um, and what I do is basically it's a form of controlled meditation. What you're doing is you are inducing the self-induced trance. Now, the Army, in their remote viewing project, which I think is they call the Stargate program, God knows what they call it now, but when McMonagall and uh, Morehouse were in the Stargate program back in the 80s and 90s, uh, they had a coach who would be with them. And um, first of all, you need dedicated time. So no more phone calls not going to go to work, not going to put the kids to bed, just open-ended time. This is my time. I'm going to remote view. Now, the Stargate people would be lying down in a, in a big lazy boy. So they're, they're nice and comfy um, with microphones all around them and things so that they can describe things and speak. And then a, a pad on a, um, a riser that they just have to draw on it. They don't have to hold the paper or anything like that. Whereas what I would do is I, I would sit in uh, what I call the campfire position, you know, where I'm sitting on my ass and folding my legs in front of me. And um, typically I would have uh, some sleep blinders over my eyes in case there's any light or anything like that. Definitely no sounds, no noise. It's quiet. Um, there's no road noise. That's why one of the reasons I live in the woods. I want to be away from traffic and noises and planes flying overhead and screaming neighbors and the barking dogs and all of that. No, no, I can't have any of that. And gotta be, gotta be quiet. And, uh, it takes me a while of taking some deep breaths and using the CNE, uh, breathing techniques that Ramtha taught me kind of move into that other state of mind. Um, and then it's like with D.B. Cooper, I would focus on certain things. I would focus on the airplane. I would focus on D.B. Cooper's face. I would focus on Tina. What's Tina doing? Is she sitting next to him? Is she walking around? Um, uh, in one remote viewing session, I focused on Ralph Himmelsbeck. Um, does he have any files? Did he hold on to any evidence? I mean, there's all the rumors. I would check it, whatever, you know, and, you know, things like that. Um, I me also one. I started one session by focusing on Ted Braden's face, the pictures. You know, it's like, okay, Teddy boy, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, and uh, um, and 
it would unfold from there. And if I would get distracted and saying, boy, I could go for a beer right now, you know, it's like, oh, no, I'm getting, I'm getting a little distracted. You know, I got to come back, you know, so I'd refocus on Ted Braden's face or Ralph Himmel's back's basement and his file cabinets or something like that. And uh, so that's, that's how I did it. And um, <laughs> you know, to the degree that I'm able to accomplish anything, that's how I started. And uh, so I think remote viewing is an advanced skill. And I would encourage you, if you want to learn how to become a remote viewer, there are people who will teach you how to do it. Uh, there's one fellow by the name of, I think his name is Stephen Smith. There's a couple of people on the internet that I've seen. And I've reached out to them. I said, hey, you know, you ever do any pro bono work? You know, how about let's, let's investigate D.B. Cooper, you know? Uh, and I've never heard back from them. So um, my experience in the realm of the woo-woo, it is best to have a teacher because once you leave the realm of the known and you start going into the unknown, it gets scary. And the potential for fear and anxiety and of unpleasant experiences is, is, is there's potential for that. And, and I would see, and we, and in the ramp, the school, which I consider to be a pretty secure and safe environment. There were times I was scared shitless about, Oh my God, like when I'm out in the woods, wandering around, you know, oh my God, what am, you know, what happens if I trip and fall? There's nobody out here. I'm going, I could die out here, you know? And it's like, no, Ramtha will not let me die, you know? And he would have watchers. He would have guards watching us who are not participating, who are out, who would be out there to make sure that we would be safe and secure. And I know that psychologically, um, a lot of people, had difficulty handling the changes that they were experiencing in their lives. I'm, I had a good friend who worked with me in storytelling. He was in the ramp of the school and he just left. And I, and I saw him one day and I said, so how come you left? He says, I couldn't take it anymore. It was, my, 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 my life was just too hot. He said, I felt like I was on fire every day. <laughs> I said, I just, I just had to take a break. And I said, yeah, I can get that. You know? So, you know, you come up against something in your life, you know, and this is a transformative experience. This is evolution. This, this is a, this is something that we do so that we become greater than what we have been. And it's like climbing a mountain. If you're going to climb Everest, you better have a really good parka, you know, and put some crampons on your feet because you don't want to slip off the mountain and fall. You know, you're going to have to prepare and be equipped and make sure that you're tied into the rope and that you have a mountaineering guide with you. It's the same kind of thing. Now, I, I, I've never recommended anyone ever to go to the Ramtha school. And it's like, wherever you, wherever, whatever path you take, this, all roads, not only do all roads lead to, to Rome, all roads lead to God. The Ramtha road is just one. And the people who, want that road, find that road. And I think that's the way it is. If you open yourself up, you know, hey, you know, when you, when, when, when you live your life and your head is in the cloud all the times, 
the other folks who live in the clouds are going to find you too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he said, "Hey, let's 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 have dinner sometime." Okay. <laughs> a self-selecting group. Exactly. Exactly. You 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 know, birds of a feather flocking together, even <laughs> at ten thousand feet. <laughs> have you ever screwed around with psychedelics? Uh, yes, uh, a little bit back in the college days, and and young, and and smoking some pot and stuff like that. And I have, st- I couldn't take any drugs. I don't, I think the last time I smoked any weed was like in the eighties, uh, 82 or something like that. And it was, it was kind of a weird, like I was in the, in the right place at the wrong time kind of thing. And, uh, my anxiety level, I can't handle drugs. I can't have psychedelics. I took acid two or three times and God awful trips. Oh, that was enough. Oh, plenty, plenty. So the last the last pharmaceutical I took was peyote at an Indian thingy. And it was described as being medicine. And I wasn't savvy enough to realize it was peyote until after I had ingested it. And I, by then I was already in the ramp to school and already learning the CNE techniques and meditation and moving energy around in my body. And I resented the peyote because it had control over me and I control over my mind and my body. I didn't like that. And it was real clear to me, never again, I'm going to get wise, going to wisen up, be smart, take control of everything. And uh, cause I don't need it because I can go to absolute elsewhere without the pharmaceuticals. And I found that was pretty true. Uh, with most Ramtha students, very little drug use in the Ramtha school. Uh, nobody taking pharmaceuticals, nobody taking psychedelics that I know of, nobody taking mushrooms, nobody's dosing. A uh, little bit of weed every now and then around a campfire, but that nothing appreciable. Uh, drink a lot of wine, but... Good to know. Yeah. Talking about living in the woods in Washington State, I have to ask this question. What's your take on Bigfoot? Why don't you come to dinner sometime? <laughs> you guys drink coffee? Come on over. I, 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 last summer, I spent every night in the dark, two o'clock in the morning, sitting out in my garden to do two things. One is see if I could communicate with Bigfoot, as I prefer to call, call them, the forest people. And I would leave gifts out, ears of corn, apples, peaches, apricots, whatever. And they were all going the next morning. So I either have really well-fed raccoons or the Bigfoot people, the forest people came by and they didn't say thank you. You know, I keep telling them, I says, if you're out there, let me know you're out there. Don't make some strange noises or throwing sticks at me or whatever. Don't scare me. Come on, come on, come on. Leave a little message like... uh, you know, weave a couple branches together and make us a little sculpture and leave it at my front door. You know, hey, I'll, I'll know it's you, okay? I I believe the forest people, there's a fellow by the name of Dr. Dave Johnson, I believe it is. Uh, his book is called Bigfoot something, something, something. Does a lot of research in Oregon. Lives up here uh, near me uh, in Puyallup, just a couple miles north of me. And um, he has a lot of experiences uh, with the forest people. He calls them the forest people with Bigfoot. And he talks about them as being interdimensional beings who can phase shift, can kind of come, come in and out. 
And I kind of think that that's who Bigfoot is. Um, it's not a big, gigantic gorilla. It's a whole new species of being that is very evolved and has a lot of physiological capacities beyond us. And I think we're moving in that direction. Is it Matthew Johnson, Bigfoot, a 50-year journey? Yeah, yeah, Matthew Johnson, Dr. J. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in that area. I grew up playing around in the woods. And I was never... Woodland, Woodland, all right. (laughs) Yeah, I was never a Bigfoot guy. I was always like, it's not real. We would have found it by now. However, many men that I absolutely respect and I know them to be no-nonsense people who wouldn't make up a story have told me very similar stories about hunting and all of a sudden they just got this feeling like something really bad is going on or they, they thought they saw a shadow or something. And these are, you know, armed dudes who love hanging out in the woods and they suddenly become so afraid they have to leave. Mm. And so I don't know that that one is tough for me to say Bigfoot's not real, but then there are all these stories from people I really respect that don't match with my, my personal belief. I, I sort of feel the same way about ghosts. You know, I've, I've had family members tell me that they have ghost encounter stories. And I I remember one conversation they could tell, like I wasn't, I wasn't super into their story. And they said, you don't believe me? And I, I said, I believe you believe this. And she was like, that's really rude. And I wish I would have handled it differently now. I mean, it's not like that was the end of our relationship or anything, but how do you handle that if you don't believe in ghosts, but someone you love tells you, hey, I saw a ghost. So you want some marital counseling? No, it's not my wife. Uh, um well it's like it's like anything you know it's it's you're gonna have to find a way to uh what's more important your beliefs or your relationship um i believe in ghosts i've seen ghosts um i have i'm coming out with a collection of of stories um in in fact uh uh i've got an agent and when i'm i'm putting something together and Something good. So I'll have this book and the collect the collection of stories, uh, and, and it has the Dixie Chicks uh, story in it. Um, it's fifty different stories from my life. Most of them I've told around the campfire or from the stage at a microphone or something like that. But the title of the book is Stories from the Journey: Becoming God Realized. And each story I feel reveals something about me in terms of my evolution and how I became a man, how mature. And, mistakes that I've made and, and how I forgave myself, how I resolved things, how I res- made restitution or, or whatever, you know, the evolution uh, to become greater than what I've been and um, or what I have still yet to accomplish. Um, and what was the point of all of this? Oh, uh, ghosts. Um, ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of my stories have to deal with, my encounter with ghosts or beings or interdimensional energy figures. Um, I've had a lot. Oh, and you talk to anybody in the ramp, the school has been around for a while. Um, a lot of very similar experience, a lot of interdimensional encounters with um, 
the most prevalent is what we call glitter. Um, and we would do a meditative exercise of walking. Um, and what I do is I would walk up and down my driveway late at night and I would be doing my CNE breathing, moving energy exercises. And I'd get, I would get into a trance that where I could actually walk at the same time. And I'd be focused on, on something like uh, the telephone pole across the street or something as I'm walking down the driveway. And I would be surrounded by this cloud of shimmering lights. And we call it glitter and it's the best way to call it. It's like little tiny electrodes that just beep, beep, come in and out of, you know, they're lit, then they're off, then they're off, you know, and just a whole cloud of it, millions, millions of them. And, um, um, and in, in some, and I describe um, a lot of my interdimensional experiences and it culminated around 2003, 2005. And that was a turning point in my life. And ironically, shortly thereafter, I left the ramp to school. And I left because I was running out of money. I couldn't afford to go to any more classes, any more retreats. And my health was falling apart. My, my health was terrible. My, I, my teeth were falling out. I needed a dentist. I couldn't afford. My, my life was just, I was running on empty. And, um, and it's like, I'm having all of these interdimensional transcendental experiences and I'm broke. What's wrong with this picture? I'm unlimited. I can't, you know, I can't eat anything more than applesauce because my teeth are falling out. You know, come on. You know, this is the, the incongruity was obvious. And it's like, I need to get my life together. And I need to, I, I need to get my head out of the clouds. I need to get my feet on my ground. Dad, you were right. <laughs> at least, at least that's what I need to do now. And so um, shortly thereafter, I became a newspaper reporter and had steady income coming in and, and then the mountain news and, and all that. And I didn't go to any events nor went to very few. And I focused on living more successfully in the world my health you know and relationships and money and paying the bills and all of that and not being the mystic you know but i i was i was i lived the mystic the, the life of a mystic for 20 years and it was a great ride but it, it was it was time to end it after 20 years it was time to say something new i need something new that's what I did. Not a bad run, 20 years. Oh, no, no, I have no regrets. No regrets. That's one thing that Ramsa has taught me. Um, a, a number of things that I really hold on to as, as a rock. And it's like, don't have any regrets. You learn from everything. Every mistake is just another learning. Forgive yourself. The greatest gift you can give yourself is to forgive yourself. It's true. I definitely need help with that one. Most people do. Most people do. And that's one reason I'm writing my book. And I, I, I think my book might be <laughs> inspirational in that regard. It's like, this guy, you know, <laughs> he can figure out how to forgive himself. So maybe I can too, <laughs> because he's really pretty crazy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you know, I'll definitely be ordering a copy of that book as soon oh. as it comes out. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. Don't worry. Yeah.
speaking of mystical experiences you've had, you've you've talked about your alien abduction. Oh yeah. Let's let's start with the first time that happened to you. Where are you? What year is it? What happened? 1990. It getting abducted, getting abducted by aliens and coming to the ramp to school was a one-two punch. Bada bing, bada boom. I mean that day, the same day. Um, so I'm commuting out here. I'm staying with a buddies in his house, and at night I had my first experience. I was lying in bed on my side and was paralyzed. I could not move. And telepathically, I heard this communication right outside the window. And I knew the grays were out there, the grays being the little guys with the big eyes. And, um, and they seem to specialize in, in abductions. There's lots of different kinds of aliens, apparently, but the grays are the ones that do all the snatching. And they, it was like, hi, Bruce. You don't know us, but we know you, and we'd like to have sex with you. And uh, I go, uh, yeah, well, I've heard about that. And, you know, you have this hybrid program and you guys need he- human DNA because your whole species is fucked up you know, and you need to re-energize yourself by having sex with me. And uh, you'd be honest with you, you know, I, I'm, I'm not up for it right now. Why don't you come back in six months? Talk to me in six months. And they went away. And it's like, I went back to sleep. You were hearing that like telepathically. Telepathically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay. All right. I get up the next day. I tell my friend, Jeff, who is, it's his house. And I go, well, he goes, oh, okay. You know, we hear lots of stories like this. I said, yeah, you know, you, I read about them. I've heard about it, but this is actually happening to me. Come on. You know, is this real? And then happened the next night. And I said, Jeff, it happened again. And uh, this, the next night was a little bit more involved. And I really resented being paralyzed. And I said to my, myself, from the Lord God of my being, I raised my right arm and I was able to raise it up and move it over. And I felt I had some control in my life. And I'm telling the aliens, it's like, this is not a good time for me, you know? So, and then I could see a spaceship, a beautiful spaceship, all lit up, different colored lights, red and greens and things. And it looked like an upside down, it looked like an ice cream cone is, is really what it was. It had a big sorcery bulb, like that was the the, the single scoop of uh, cherry vanilla ice cream up there. And then it came down and it tapered down to a point. And what happened to the house that I was in or the walls or the ceiling or the roof? I don't know, they weren't, they weren't there, but the spaceship was there. And it's like, ah, you know, that's really a beautiful thing. And it's like, you want to play? You got to pay. I said, no, 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 no. And then blinked out and it came back in gray, no lights, no beauty. And it was so drab and so ugly. I go, I get it. If you want me to see the beauty, to play in the big leagues, go off with you guys, do amazing things. I'm going to have to have sex with you guys. I said, no. No, no deal. They were gone. That's it. Two weeks later, I'm back in New York and I'm with my lady and I'm in bed with her and three grays come in. And um, one of the grays is a little taller and she's kind of like a hybrid. She's like maybe four or five feet tall, whereas the other guys are three feet tall. And uh, they all glide. They all just kind of glide in. Nobody's walking. And God knows how they got in the house and got in the bedroom. And um uh, telepathic, telepathically, uh, the tall one uh, tells me that she would like to have sex with me. And I, and telepathically, I say back to her, she has a wig on 
and it's kind of askew. And so it's like, like 90 degrees wrong. And I said, and, and she looked oriental to me. So her eyes are slanted, but they're not big like the other guys. And, and the black, and it's a black wig. And I said, so what's with the wig? You look like Susie Wong that, that, you know, has a hangover. And, uh, and she, she re repositions it and she looks pretty good and gets on top of me and we have sex. And I, and I go, what about my, my lady? She's right next to me. And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. She's not part of this. And I go, All right. and <clears throat> the next day I felt really debased. It's like, Oh my God, I cheated on my wife right next to her in the same bed. And I had sex with an alien and I really enjoyed it. I'm really a double loser here. You know, I'm really despicable. And as it turns out, I had uh, a psychotherapy session. Um, I've been in therapy all my life, you know, and, uh, and I was seeing my therapist and um, I was, I was rattled, you know, it's like, Oh my God, I'm having sex with aliens. Um, I'm falling apart here. And, uh, and she was nonplussed. She said, Bruce, uh, from my perspective, um, I, I think what you're experiencing is um, um, a lucid presentation of your deeper subconscious desires that you think for you to have a satisfying romantic sexual relationship is so unattainable for you, you're going to have to go to outer space and find a girlfriend out there. And um, when she said that, it sounded very plausible. Yeah. Okay. I'm not crazy. I'm just lonely. <laughs> and uh, I got to find a, I got to find a, a real mate, you know? So uh, uh, I actually, I came back and I told my lady about that. And uh, to her, to her, it was just the, yet the one, the latest, you know, news from Bruce going crazy in front of my eyes. And it had been going on for a year by at that point. And um, she was not plus two. So it's like, well, everyone else seems to be able to handle my sex with alien stuff. And um, um, six months later, and I had no more experiences that I was aware of. Six months later, uh, I've left my lady and I've made, I'm making plans to drive to Yelm. And I have a new girlfriend who's really into the Ramtha school and she lives in New York and we go to a UFO conference and I have my first job as a freelance journalist. I'm going to interview Zechariah Sitchin for um, a, a Ramtha community uh, newsletter called the Sovereign Scribe. And I'm, Zechariah Sitchin has written a book called uh, I think the 12th planet or something like that and it talks about the how aliens have visited humanity uh, with frequency to help us with our revolution and um, um, have transformed us from run-of-the-mill gorillas to homo sapiens by changing our brains and giving us DNA of humanity and helping expand our frontal lobes so that we can talk and think and have executive decision-making capabilities and learn science and yada, 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 yada. So I'm talking to Zechariah Sitchin and interviewing and taking notes and things like that. But the bigger thing for me personally was Bud Hopkins was also at the conference and he started speaking and he started talking about a guy who was having sex with aliens this the same way I had had it. And the, this guy that he was talking about was freaking out 
and Bud was talking about how common this is. And when he started talking about this, I, I just started rocking back and forth. I fell off. I, I was I was so emotionally distraught. I fell off my chair and I was I'm on my knees in the back of the room. And my girlfriend, who had come with me, is kind of holding on to me. She's, you know, she's got a live one here. She's got another crazy guy, you know. And afterwards, I walk up to Bud. I walk up to Bud and I said, Bud, you have no idea. I, 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 I'm in the back. I'm, I'm rocking back and forth. I'm crying. I'm weeping. I'm, I, I can't control myself. I'm on my knees on the floor as you're telling the story. And he goes, oh, <laughs> it really got to you. I says, man, it really got to me. And he says, well, why don't you come by the office and, uh, you know, I can give you some same hypnosis and you can see a little bit more. I said, well, I'm moving to Yelm and I got to get ready and I'm going. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, in Washington State. And I says, yeah, he says, oh, there's plenty of therapists out there. Just, you know, when you get out there, you just talk to somebody. And uh, I said, great. So Bud was really helpful. I loved him. He's a great guy. So that was my introduction to the UFO community and, and stuff. When I came out here, then I, I jumped in. To the pool with both feet you know i just jumped under the, the deep end and started swimming around and uh here i am you know so did you have any more experiences with with grays after that no and and i have recently i've had a couple uh, and then at one point i stopped it because and i stopped going to ufo meetings and and i just withdrew from the ufo community because it just seemed too fanatical, too crazy, too outlandish, too wild. And if the if the aliens, if I did to somebody else what I thought the aliens were doing to me and the other people in the support groups I was going to, I said, if 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 I did this to somebody else, I'd be executed on the spot. They'd throw a rope around my neck and string me up from the nearest tree. I mean. There's no way, there's no way that this is, is holy or healthy or helpful. And I said, I want nothing of it. And I never had any more contact with aliens to this day. I've never had any contact. However, in the last year or two, I have really diligently sought out to have direct contact with, with extraterrestrials. And that's when I found out and started listening to uh, Bashar, another channeled fellow, who, who channels through a fellow by the name of Daryl Anka from Los Angeles. Bashar talks about people making direct contact with extraterrestrials and that this is our destiny uh, for those who choose it. So it's not a universal destiny, it's a selective destiny and that there will be a new species forming for those homo sapiens who choose it to merge with Grays, who chose it, and that we will form a new species that will be very telepathic. Um, have all have all the tellers, uh, tele by location and levitation and telekinesis and and all that, all that mind mind stuff, the mind over matter stuff. We'll have it in spades, and Bashar calls this new species Homo Galacticus, and he says. That his job, his purpose in being here is to shepherd this new species into being. And he says that um, in another year, there will be selective, real, direct contact. I'm trying to speed up the timeline by 
sitting out in the garden. So if I'm not looking for Bigfoot and talking to Bigfoot telepathically, I'm talking to the the aliens and the extraterrestrials. It's like, come on, boys, you know, you know, um, I don't want to have sex, but I'd like to sit down and talk with you. Maybe we'll have a cigar. Okay. Um, and nothing's happening, but Bashar says it's going to happen. Whether he's true or not, I don't know, but um, that's that's my current relationship with with extraterrestrials, and I believe there have been. I'm not so <clears throat> Bashar calls it Homo Galacticus, and over the last few years, as I saw my own growth, my own characterization of my own evolution, I called myself that I just was I described myself as evolving into what I was am calling Homo Divinity. That the, the the divine nature embrace uh, recognizing the, the our divine nature and our our uh, our true relationship with source with God and and what we are becoming what our destiny is and I call it Homo divinity Bashar calls it Homo galacticus and I just found out that as a psychologist uh, PhD psychologist in Seattle I just got his book yesterday um, that talks about he calls the it's called the title is the end of Homo sapiens, the transformation of humanity, and he calls the new species will be Homo sapien lumina, and he's talking about all the things that we've been talking about tonight that Bashar is talking about, the telepathy, all the mindfulness, and uh, and he says that he's uh, this this fellow's name is Thomas Beck, and uh, Doctor Beck says that this has been. Um, prophesized in lots of religious writings that the natural destiny for those humans who choose it is to become this highly evolved mindful being and uh, um, so here we are the timing of of this happening do you think you were more selected because you were opening your mind up or do you think you opened your mind so wide that you manifested this both i um at the risk of being uh, pretty cheeky there's a part of me that feels i was i'm pretty special you know and my specialness was recognized and i got selected yeah we want him (laughs) um but i think in terms i think the real issue is 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 that i've wanted this destiny that i chose this life I think we all choose our lives. I, I believe very much in reincarnation. Uh, and I believe that we uh, have the capacity uh, before we come into our bodies, before we're born in this realm, when we're in the other places, whatever they are, he- heaven, whatever the realms are of absolute elsewhere, we come here with an agenda, with a purpose. We come here for a particular reason. We just don't kind of like drop in on the place. And, and I believe I came in with this, uh, this desire to, uh, to become homo divinity, to become God-realized. And, uh, and that has been a, gu- a guiding force and has been a magnetizing force. I think Ramtha selected me. Um, I think um, when I first, back, back when I was picking rocks and I got that little Windward's tabloid newspaper, it kept coming every month, and and I and I called him after three months. I called him up and I says, "Hi, this is Bruce Smith in New York. I'd like to buy a subscription. I'm really enjoying your tabloid." And um, and they said, uh, "Bruce Smith in Seacliff, New York." I said, "Yeah, that's me." They said, "No, you're already paid in full." I said, "Nah, 
I said, I'm calling now because I want to pay in full. I said, no, you already are paid in full. And they got angry at me. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I said, I, I, I never heard of Ramtha before. And, you know, how could, how could I, maybe someone else bought it or something. And, and, and I said, no. So I figured Ramtha wiggled his fingers and put me in the, in the computer bank. And I ended up with a free newspaper, you know, thank you, Ramtha, you know? So, um, and that's a, another, that's a story in my book, uh, the collection, uh, the stories from the journey. Uh, so. Yeah. And where would you life be, life be if you never found that little newspaper tabloid? I, I'd be somewhere else. You know, I may have come to the Ramsey school another way, you know, um, when I have had a, a warm, warm relationship with Ramsey. I, I have felt that I have had personal kinship with him and, um, and it started with the with the newspaper with the with the tabloid, and there have been times where I just hear his voice, and uh, now he's now I don't know what he's doing. He's I mean he's talking about Trump and uh, QAnon and anti-vax. He's talking a lot of crazy talk, but yeah, but the Ramtha I know, I truly loved, and. Uh, I have a lot of a lot of a lot of appreciation, a lot of warm feelings. I learned a lot wonderful stuff from it. Learned a lot of physics. Speaking of warm feelings, you're getting the electric chair tomorrow. What's your last meal? Fried chicken, I guess. But why would I get the electric chair? That's irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. The only important thing is what would your last meal be? Fried chicken from anywhere specific? Yes, there is a restaurant in Aberdeen, Washington, that says we have the best fried chicken, and they do. What's the restaurant called? I don't remember. What and a horrible every, plug. <laughs> I know. And every time I'm in Aberdeen and I want to have fried chicken, I go driving around looking for the place because I can't remember where it is. And when I start asking people, um, that's I, I have to start doing, I have to do some mindful meditation you know and and go to absolute elsewhere it's like my internal gps i don't i don't have gps uh so i have to you know make a left here make a right there let my intuition take me and i find it so on the south side of the street i know that and it's one story it's gray has a big parking lot good parking all right if you're on a road trip and you stop at a convenience store to get gas and use the bathroom what do you buy at the convenience store cheese doodles if they have them breakfast burritos a gas station breakfast burrito is always good mm -hmm. i have been in washington state for 30 years i have never had a corn dog once they look disgusting in your life you've never had a corn dog? i've never had a corn dog do you like hot dogs i have mixed strong mixed feelings what could you have mixed feelings about hot dogs well i love them except that when i eat them i feel i get a tummy ache all right, well, maybe skip the corn dogs then. Yeah, I'm are skipping you, them for now. Are you familiar with the term everyday carry? No. It's just what is in your pockets every day. You leave the house, what are you carrying with you? I got a wallet that has all my medical cards and a hundred bucks and a spare key, all my plastic. That's in one pocket. It's in a forward pocket. In my back pocket, I have my ignition key. And then I have some loose change. Never more than two dollars worth of loose change in my left front pocket. And I never leave home without my suspenders because I'm so fat. <laughs> 
how are the sales of the third edition of D.B. Cooper and the FBI? Don't know. Um, not particularly robust. All my royalties now come through the publisher, Moonshine Cove, and he only pays me once a year in January. So I'm not going to find out how many books I've sold uh, for the year until January 2023. But from the time the book came out in early November of 2021 to January this year, I sold 57 books. Everyone listening should go get that book. I mean, I've talked about it on the other show quite a bit. Oh, you do. You you talk about it more than me. <laughs> well, I truly do use it when reading somebody else's book. They'll say something about the case or about a suspect. And I have to think like, you know, I've read so many different books and theories and suspects that I get the story mixed up in my own head. So I have to go back to your book to check. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. But I've come, I've come across as the, the book and all the information that we know is so vast. I don't think anybody can hold on to all of it anymore. I know I can't. And when I read, there are some people call me up and say, how tall was Richard McCoy? And I said, I don't know. I think he was about 5'10 or something like that. And I said, well, your book says he's 5'6". I go, what? And what page is that on? And I said, I look at it and go, my God, that's what my book says. <laughs> Who put that in? I never, ever thought Richard McCoy was 5'6". How that got in the book, I don't know. Then there's another line. This comes up with Eric all the time about the cigarette butts. And I constantly argue with him that the 302 from the feds says the cigarette butts may be destroyed because we feel there's no further forensic evidence, you know, from them. And, the, and it was provisional, may be destroyed. And I've argued with him multiple times. When I read my quote in the book, I have written what Eric says, the cigarette butts were destroyed. I said, who took the may out? That one word that changes the whole thing. And so I don't know if it's editorial gremlins or it's my, my, my publisher has sabotaged me or he thinks he knows best. Or I, uh, <laughs> It's just a mistake. There are a lot of words in that book and I'm sure some of them. 130,000 uh, words. It's like, oh my God, read them and weep. I, it's too big, too many words, too many pages. What's the difference between the D.B. Cooper community and the UFO community? Not a, not a whole lot of difference in a lot of ways. You and I are fascinated with Cooper and mysteries, unsolved crimes. You're talking about this one podcast with the Fowler guy about the Jody Husen, Husen, Cruz. Husen Trude, I believe is how you say it. Yeah, whatever her name is. Um, there's a fascination with that thing, like making known the unknown. And we derive a, 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 a part of our identity from that, that we are, we're sleuths, we're, we're warriors for truth. And um, that kind of curiosity and persistence is very present in the UFO community. What's up there and why? How come the government won't tell us? 
why what are they lying to us you know let's go down maybe we can sneak into area 51 <laughs> you know uh there there, there are comparable conversations and qualities maybe the maybe the proper name changes instead of talking about tina bar we're talking about area 51 but everything else the the, the plot line and the motivation and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it's very comparable very similar um and what i'm finding is this great uh synergy between the alien abduction people and the spiritual community, the Ramtha community, this evolution, these Homo Galacticus people and the Homo, uh, Homo sapien lumina. It, it, I'm, I'm just seeing so much of this, these crossovers. I think they call them Venn diagrams where these circles overlap, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. Do you think that we will get an answer for certain one way or the other? on ufos yes i mean there was like new york times article that came out i think it was in 2020 i feel like it was during the pandemic but it was basically this new york times article like hey we have these fighter pilots they took these images the pilots don't know what it is we don't know what it is that's the story yeah the tic tac yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. It's 20, 2017 2017 was it oh, okay yeah my yeah. time is just completely been blown out the window the last two yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and I, I heard him on, on Joe Rogan's show. And then he was on this Lex Friedman podcast as well. And that pilot, I just found him so believable. And that story, um, you know, it, here's a dude that the government is trusting him with this billion dollar vehicle. And he gets to fly it around in the sky by himself. He's a commander of a of a fighter squadron. You know, first attack fighter squadron. He, he's the tip of the spear. Yeah, the and US it wasn't Navy. like when this happened, they were like, you're crazy, you're fired. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no. Because I would no. love to know. I want to know so bad. So no. What what what's holding you back from believing? Nothing really. I mean, I Seems like there's good evidence that UFOs exist, but I want one to land, you know, in Kentucky and then aliens walk off and it's on the news and I guess they get to meet Joe Biden or something. I don't know. Well, you can come and sit in the garden out, you know, with me at night and you can look for UFOs in the sky and I'll be looking for aliens on the ground. So <laughs> I would 100% do that. Yeah, I, I to me, I think UFOs are real. Um, and the whole, the whole, the, the kind of acceptance that you sound like you are looking for where it is, UFOs are real the same way Vladimir Putin is real. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get to that because the implications, the resistance to a universal acceptance of, of alien life is just too alien. Uh, for many people. And uh, although the Catholic Church is kind of getting warmed up for it, you know, it's like, well, you know, they're sons of God, too. So, you know, you know, you can pray for them and they have souls. Aliens have souls. So they're already getting their doctrine lined up, you know, their dogmatic, uh, you know, perspectives. Um, but I think what I think what we're seeing, I, I, what, what I'm anticipating and what I'm observing is a, a fracturing, a, a split in society. We see it in politics, and I think 
that that fracturing is going to continue. The red and blue is just going to get more pronounced. And um, UFOs are going to be one of the topics, like vaccines. It will be it will be the new meta metaphysical dividing line. Do you believe in UFOs? No. Uh, do, do you believe in? Yes, I do. You know, and um, um, you're going to pick your tribe, and you're going to pick the UFO tribe, and that, and and then from that will be a cascade of other choices. And it's all if you believe in UFOs, then do you believe in alien abductions, and do you believe in the hybrids, and do you believe in having sex with aliens, and do you believe in Homo Galacticus? And, you know, and there's there's all of this, and 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 I think that we will be moving the divide between red and blue will be so profound that we will be in effect living in two different worlds, not only just two different countries, but two different worlds. And that gets into the quantum physics of all of this is what does consciousness really create when it is robustly applied? And quantum physics, as I understand it, is telling us is that there are no limits, that unlimitedness is unlimited. And so the nature of creating another earth for the blue people or the red people, you know, whatever, is a challenging thought, but I think we're going there. And I take great sucker in that, that even though in the world I live in now, and I'm surrounded by guys driving their pickup trucks with Trump flags waving at 60 miles an hour, and everybody's anti-vaxxing and drinking Kool-Aid. You know, it's like, well, who knows? A few years from now, I'm going to be on another on another Earth, and you know, enjoy your climate change. <laughs> you know? That's a terrible answer. I absolutely hate it. The idea that UFOs become politically partisan makes me crazy. I don't want that to happen. Well, maybe there'd be a third word because what I what I've experienced in the in the UFO world is the people who are who are most strident and passionate about UFOs are Trumpers. They also turn out to be Trumpers, and the leading voices and the most passionate voices in the alien abduction community are anti-vaxxers. So. I don't know how many worlds we're going to split into. I mean, we, we may fracture into quite a few. And, and quantum physics says that there's an unlimited number of Earths. So it's called the many worlds theory of rea reality. Uh, and it's been around since the 1950s. And, and uh, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, yeah, I'm just reading books and I'm going, well, <laughs> the, the many worlds theory of reality. Interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, so when you when you start drilling into these things, um, I feel very fortunate that I have a comfy, cozy little place in the woods where I'm all alone and it's nice and quiet and dark. And <laughs> because when I go into the the world, it gets really crazy really quickly for me. You know, I, I get very challenged very quickly. So, what's your take on simulation theory? Are we living in a simulation? Uh, no, I don't know simulation theory, but from what I can imagine is because people talk about this as a hologram or it's an illusion. Um, to me, it's it's real. There's 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 an element of solidity to this world. 
And I think we create it. I think we create it with our minds. Um, I had a, a big discussion with uh, uh, some of my friends in the abductee community who are really into astrology. And, and it's like, why don't you believe in astrology? And it's like, why should I believe that planets control my life? Because I'm unlimited. I believe I control the planet's destinies. You know, <laughs> it's like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I'm in charge, not the planets. You know, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, Bruce, you know, so it's like, there goes another relationship, you know. So, <laughs> so what, what can I say? Simulations, um, like the Matrix or anything like that, I, I believe this is all, a con yeah, it's all a construction, but very purposeful and very real and very worthwhile and very purposeful and very sacred. And um, to call this world or the realm that we live in an illusion or Maya is it to me discounts it and discredits it. And it's a tragedy. Yeah. It, it sort of makes life meaningless. If it's, if I'm just part of a simulation. Yeah. It's like, you know, and, and, and so how did you end up in a simulation? Did you make a left turn when you should have made a right? You know, is, was there, was there an, uh, some kind of an error in the, the distribution center, you know, and, Boys and girls were going this way and that way. I, you know, come on, come on. What's next for you, Bruce? More of this. I was telling my therapist today. I, to me, uh, I was very excited to meet with you tonight, and and I'm very excited in my life right now because these kinds of conversations and speaking my truth about how I see things is increasingly important to me, and I'm going for it. And my book of stories about being a ramp the student and seeing weird things and being abducted by aliens and all the things that we've talked about tonight to put it into print and put it into the world it's like yes i'm doing it and as i told my therapist i said i feel like i'm martin luther king in 1519 back in leipzig where he nails that piece of paper up to the up to the church door you know it's like we need justice in the church we need you know um this kind of stuff i feel like i'm I'm planting my flag up for my truth and kind of kind of coming out of the shadows. And so I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. Oh, I'm very thankful to you. I think one of the reasons the other show was as successful as it was is because I ended up putting you as the first episode. You weren't the first interview I did. You were the second interview I did. But when I got home and I listened to those, I was like, oh, Bruce has got to be first because <laughs> you, you just have you have an ability where I could just stick a microphone in front of your face and say, go. And whatever comes out is is fantastic. It's great. You have a very elegant way of speaking. Um, you can have beautiful, long winded answers to what I thought was a dumb, simple question. I think you're awesome. And you should be on everybody's podcast. I mean, you are an amazing guest. I've had so many people tell me, oh yeah, I checked out your show and that guy, Bruce Smith, like he was so good. I had one friend uh, in that episode, you said, holy shamoli a few times. <laughs> and after that, every time I saw him, he was just, holy shamoli. It's just great.
And uh, I thank you. I got for that everything. from a girlfriend, so I, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't invent that. So I got to give a credit, accreditation. <laughs> well, if people want to want to find you and find your work, where can they do that? Well, you have my, you have my permission to give my contact information out to anybody. Um, best way to get a hold of me is to uh, send me an email at brucesmith at rainierconnect.com. You want to read my stuff, learn more about me. You want to tiptoe into the world of Bruce. The Mountain News has got everything that we've talked about tonight is on the Mountain News somewhere. Um, so um, a lot of the quantum physics stuff that I've written about, I've written about the hard science of human levitation. I've written about anti-gravity. Uh, I've written about you know, the multi-worlds theory, things like that. From what I know, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people. Um, I, and and, and I, I have a book that I've been working on since 2003, which is, a, is titled Into, Into, the, Into the Science of Consciousness, uh, The New Physics. And, um, and I, it has been stymied because I really don't know how to present the mystics. I really have been grappling with how to present Ramtha. And the Ramtha school doesn't know They don't want me to write about Ramtha. It's like, really? Come on. So there's impediments to that. Um, but I want to get my stories out first, because I think for, for me and from what I'm talking about, what I think is important for the world um, is to hear one guy's story. OK, because I'm not as I'm not walking on water yet. I'm not changing water into wine, but I am a Christ in training. You know, I'm going for it. And uh I can't heal myself. I'm still taking my blood pressure medication, you know, so <laughs> still working on it, you know, and I've uh, been at it for a while, but I'll get there in, in the same way. Like we'll figure out DB Cooper. You think we will? Yeah, I think so. I'm less confident now than when I talked to you four years ago. <sighs> I have this recurring fear that he's dead. That he that he cratered somewhere, and we just haven't found the body and the everything else. God, and I have no idea how the money got to Tina Bar. <laughs> well, that sums up what Bruce and I know about DB Cooper. Pretty much. <laughs> Bruce, I'm a big fan of yours. Whatever you do, whatever book you put out, I'm going to continue to follow your work. And I suggest everybody else does as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I would hope that you would want to drill down into some of these topics, either you know, like you want to talk about abductions, alien abductions, you want to talk about Bigfoot. Let's let's get Brett and some, you know, let's get a panel going or get Nikki and, you know, and some of the guys. So it's just not me flapping my gums all night long. I don't, I don't like doing panel interviews because... No? You, there's too many people talking over each other. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. All right, but I, I would, I would welcome the opportunity if you would like. You know, like when you get some feedback from the folks, like, oh, that Bruce was into this, that Bruce was into that. If you want to do a show just on alien abductions, I mean, we can really can drill on that. The TikToks are UFOs real, things like that. Oh, I would be honored to have you as a recurring guest. Let's do it. Let's do it. I sign up for it. Because, like I said, there. Of all the people I know, you have the greatest ability to have a mic put in front of you and just go. Thank you. 
<laughs> uh, I'll give you some feedback. I, I um, somebody from the Facebook, the DB Cooper Facebook group, mystery, mystery DB Cooper, mm -hmm. woman by the name of Amy called me uh, a week ago. We had a wonderful conversation, and uh, she said, "You know, what is this uh, this remote viewing that you keep talking about? What was she had really no idea? Is that like meditation? <laughs> I, 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 well, kind of, you know." And we started talking, and we ended up talking about you a lot. And the podcast and how much she loves the podcast. And she had told me that the book of Darren is already up and running. You I you already have four podcasts in the can, as they say in Hollywood. That's correct. Yeah. And she says, when is he going to start making money on this? He's got to <laughs> have ads. He, he needs a producer. He, he needs a publicist. He needs he's so good. It's it's wonderful. He should be making money. And, you know, and I said. I said, well, with that level of financing and sponsorship and advertising, you end up getting external pressures. Now, we don't want to talk about this or we don't want to talk about that. And then when you start having other people on the payroll or you depend on, you know, it's like, well, we need we need to come up with a really juicy story because uh, we've got to come up with the mortgage, you know. So there are other pressures but i assured her that i think that you have a wonderful career in communications ahead of you that this that you just seem to be blossoming this is your this is your second pedal the first pedal was the db cooper vortex now it's the book of darren and we have we haven't talked about mormonism no we didn't get to it at all no so you got to you got to tell me about what what the Book of Mormon means and you know are you a are you a Mormon? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I haven't been kicked out yet. Oh, do you get baptized? How, how does one become a Mormon? Uh, I was born into it. That's one way. <laughs> and then at eight, I was baptized. Okay. And then at eighteen, I chose to not go anymore. Okay. That is the super short version. <laughs> of my experience in mormonism okay so like ethnically you're a mormon but you're not a practicing mormon yeah i heard seth rogan say this once and i like to think of myself this way um he said you know he was he was raised jewish and he doesn't really live that lifestyle anymore but he still associates with that group of people and he said you know the nice thing about it being a jew is that i can say i'm jew-ish Mm -hmm. there, there's no Mormon equivalent for that. It's you tend to either be all in or all out. There's nothing really in between. I, I'd like to say I identify as Mormonish. Does your does your mother practice? Is your is your mother a Mormon? Oh yeah, my my parents are both very involved. So is my sister. My Ooh. brother just returned from his mission in Canada. Whoa, okay, that's getting serious. Yeah, I'm the black sheep. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> to the club all right we could get into that more next time bruce uh, next next time we'll, we'll we'll do a deep dive i mean you 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 asked me about my high school yeah because i'm the one doing the interview well okay so all right <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about your mormonism we'll talk about your life bruce thanks for coming on i really appreciate it thank you darren my pleasure always always look forward to the next time me too bruce is awesome go check out his work if you like listening to him, you'll love reading his writings. He covers it all on his site. 
TheMountainNewsWA.com. Whether or not you're into D.B. Cooper, get on Amazon and buy a copy of his book, D.B. Cooper and the FBI. It's so good that you can even read my recommendation on the back of that book. True story. Go order one. Show him some support. He deserves it. Thank you to Bruce A. Smith for all the help and advice with my journey in podcasting. Thank you to Russell Colbert for the same thing. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Book of Darren. Forget about it. This book is not for you.